0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian from the Farnborough International Air Show. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, analysis of Farnborough after three days. But first, we met with Mike Schulhorn, the Chief Executive Officer of Airbus Defense and Space. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Mike? Thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute honor to be talking to you. Thanks, Farwa. Thanks for having me. Uh, An absolute pleasure. It's certainly an interesting uh, time. Uh, German uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz has called this the you know, marking a dramatic change. From your standpoint, what does this dramatic change mean? Because there is a perception that there will be more spending uh, in Europe, and obviously Germany announcing $100 billion. But there is some skepticism whether or not the government is really earnest about that change and whether that investment is going to happen. You're the chief executive of Europe's leading defense in space uh, and certainly aerospace concern. Is this a dramatic change and is this a permanent change that so many people believe is necessary, including in Germany?
1: Well, you know, I've had a lot of talks uh, between uh, the 27th of February when, when Chancellor Charles Schultz had his famous uh, Zeitenwende speech and uh, to to try and answer that question, how much substance is behind it, how much mm-hmm. is really happening, and I've come to the very clear conclusion, it is a and it is a dramatic change. Uh, it is intended. Are there difficulties? Yes. I mean, you probably observed how long it took to get the 100 billion approved in Parliament and all of that, because people people started from where they were mentally which was uh, um, not a very pro defense uh, attitude in germany unfortunately and it took that war very unfortunately for people to wake up and recognize that that the things that we that we that we value uh, cannot be taken for granted so i think that has sunk in and interestingly it has sunk in with the greens that had taken a more Uh, pacifistic stance, if you will, uh, before uh, much quicker than with the rest. Uh, Because I think they they have realized that we cannot just observe people getting killed, civilians getting slaughtered. And I think that has had a profound impact on them. So I think the politicians are now putting the money where their mouth is. Um, That does not mean that we're not going to have difficulties in the procurement process that is still used to the
0: slow, old way of, of, of dealing with things, and that's something that has to change too. Um, I want to ask you about that, about uh, going faster on programs uh, in a moment, and I should point out you, your predecessor, Dirk Hoka, his predecessor, Tom Enders, uh, have been making the case for some time about the need for added investment, particularly in Germany, um, which has great systems, but for example, not enough spare parts, munitions and, and, the, and the like. What We've seen in the wake of the Titan vendor, uh, Germany order F 35s from the United States, 60 Chinooks from the United States, two very large orders that are going to two American giants. Uh, and here you sit in that mix. Uh, what does the Titan vendor mean for you and more broadly from a European context, because there are other nations that are spending more money as well? What does that mean for you guys? What are the market areas where you think there's going to be the fastest shift? And how are you organizing? in order to be able to capitalize on those opportunities and, and deliver more quickly? Okay. Very good question. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, firstly, um, yeah, we
1: were a bit t- disappointed with some of the decisions, but quite frankly, on on the heavy helicopters, Airbus doesn't have an offering, so it was it was clear it would be a U.S. US platform. Um, on the F-35, we were in competition with Lockheed Martin around the nuclear participation piece of the tornado succession. Um, the F-35 was chosen we, we, we respect that um, Germany is now one of several countries in Europe that almost have the same fleet in terms of uh, typhoons so so Eurofighters, F-35s A-400Ms, MRTTs so actually in terms of connected warfare of the future there's a lot of commonality that, that actually the F-35 in that sense is is sort of helpful in a way even um, They are other chunks of the tornado su- succession where we either have already scored, like on electronic warfare, um, which will go to us. That was previously slated to go to the to the Growler, to the F-18, and there's the biggest chunk, which is the the fighter bomber piece that we that we think we have a good chance to to obtain that as well. Um, so Eurofighter is still in the race. In in many cases, we recently at ELA could sign 20 more for Spain. Spain has more F-18s that need to be replaced. So, so we have some irons in the fire when it comes to that. Um, transport, you look at A400M, which is uh, now proving its value, not only after Kabul where it was heavily used for the evacuation, but also now on the eastern flank of NATO, uh, especially the Germans fly it as a tanker, uh, as a refueling uh, aircraft. And it's, uh, it's, it's doing a marvelous job, we're being told. So there is some export campaigns that, that get positively influ- influenced by the usage and the reputation the aircraft is gaining. Um, and then I would say EuroDrone has started. Uh, it was a long way to get there, get, get four countries aligned, budgets aligned, all of that. But now we're in the program and we're delivering uh, per the milestone planning. And I would not forget space. I think what we saw in Ukraine also is how important space is from a military point of view, that the discussion whether or not space was a military domain is is way behind us. Um, And we are seeing a picking up of demand not only in satellite imagery, but also in terms of um, more resilience that also European countries want to put into space, Uh, thinking about constellations, if you will, maybe smaller constellations, both in terms of Milsatcom, but also Earth observation, and recently, and I was I was very happy to see that as a staunch North Atlantic and, and NATO supporter, um, with my own uh, private history, um, that we were awarded a part of the Tranche one, of uh, the transport layer for for the SDA constellation, which was really a great uh, success jointly
0: with uh, U.S. Prime North, North of Grumman. Um, And I'll ask you about growth in the uh, United States in a minute. I want to shift gears a little bit to speed. Uh, You mentioned that some of it is procurement processes. Uh, The guys, you know, in Koblenz tends to be very methodical in the way they go about their acquisition uh, decisions. The acquisition directorate, for those who don't know, stayed outside Bonn instead of moving to Berlin with the rest of the ministry. Um, And you also have a supply chain problem. And the challenge a little bit discussed with uh, uh, Air Force Secretary Kendall uh, on Monday was the, the effectively of, you know, you have the guns, the question is, uh, the bullets are getting the bullets and the guns, right? I mean, because that's what deterrence is all about, ultimately. What has to happen on the process side to move at the speed of relevance from your standpoint? And then what can you do on the supply chain side and on the manufacturing side? because at the end, you need the guns and the bullets if it is gonna be seen as a credible deterrent. And at this point, the speed is just not there. Yeah, good point. Uh, first of all, let me, let me maybe use
1: a picture, of the, the, the gun and the bullet, um, we're making the guns. The bullets come from MBDAs and, and, and others, but obviously it is like, how do, you, how do you tap into the whole supply chain to, to, to deliver the capabilities that, that armed forces now need? Um, we have started a discussion with our uh, customer air forces um, also amplified by the call of the French president for a war economy uh, to define what does that mean. Uh, so you need to put some numbers around it in terms of, okay, how much, how many flight hours, how many more aircraft, what is the, what is the lead time that you expect? So we're putting this together. And we're assessing that against the current capability of a very strained supply chain. And I think what needs to happen uh, with everything that's already being done to, to to find second sources for some of the things that have fallen by the wayside because of Russian supply or because, um, especially on the commercial side, Chinese supplies are maybe not looked at the same way as before. Um, we need to flush more money into the supply chain to the sub tiers because they currently hear a lot of people speaking but they want to believe it and they want and they will create the capacity and reserve the people if they see the money for it and currently there's a there is a, a shortage and a bottleneck especially around people in in
0: the whole aviation industry So what's the best way to do that? I know you as uh, any prime contractor, Ted uh, Colbert told us the same thing about how they're moving money to their suppliers, because they said, look, you know, you know, there's pressure across the entire supply chain. How much of this is what Airbus does? How much of this do you have to do with partner governments and governments everywhere? Because at the end of the day, it's in their interest to make sure, right, I mean, because we had a buy it all the, all at once efficiently, all of a sudden, we things are out of production, now we have to put them back in production. Give us a little sense on the investment balance, and then how do we need to think about the supply chain going forward? Because as you said, you can't rely on Russia anymore, and you can't rely on China anymore, and that just changes the whole ballgame. Yeah. Um- it's a joint effort.
1: I, I think we're still working out how much comes from whom, but it has to be a joint effort, and we're, we're receiving very clear signals that that the countries are wanting to chip in. So they, they, they are leaving their efficiency dogma for, for the time being. They recognize something needs to change. Some of the old mechanisms that actually those of us that have been with defense maybe in the 80s recognized to have larger prepayments that you can then downflush into the supply chain. These are mechanisms that we're currently discussing and we're finding a lot of open ears for that.
0: Is there a number, 10 billion, 20 billion, is there a number estimate that governments should be thinking of maybe collectively, individually? I mean, is there a number out there that will address some of these challenges and actually help stabilize the industry at the lower tiers? I think it's very difficult to come up with that number
1: i think we're still in a fact finding part and putting trying to put that number together so anything i would say now is probably wrong uh, but it will be in the billions i mean that's for sure
0: and uh, for the substitution part of the equation do you have an estimate on what that causes and the challenges it's causing obviously everybody was dependent on russian titanium um, whether it comes to aerospace componentry materials even composites chips Uh, China has played a leading role. Even if people are trying to be safe about it, Chinese chips have been getting, and sadly software has been getting into these systems as well. We've been covering that on the US side. Is there an imposed cost, Mike, uh, whether on energy, whether on materials, as supply chains entirely, especially in defense and space, move away from Russia and China?
1: Um, I I believe there there is a cost that is imposed onto uh, de-risking the supply chain. Um, obviously, um, when it was still working, if you will, with, with the risk that we're seeing now, um, it was fairly efficient. Um, there is a cost of relocating, and then there is a cost of higher labor costs, uh, maybe not the same ways of, of, of obtaining raw materials and, and, and standards, Western standards. So. Yes, clearly there will be a cost, but I can tell you how
0: much that is. Let me ask one last uh, cost question, uh, or energy question. Um, Europe is looking at a very challenging energy future. It's obviously a key year of uh, transition. Germany made the decision to go away from nuclear power, which is actually exacerbating all of these challenges. Um, Are are your facilities going to be in good shape, and how do those facilities get impacted by uh, the uh, energy crunch? Uh,
1: we are, as most companies in Germany and in Europe for that matter, are preparing ourselves for a real energy shortage. Um, we'll, we'll learn in, in the next couple of days whether or not uh, North Stream 1 will get cranked up again, but it could well be that it's not going to happen. So the plannings of the German government in that case, but also what what we take over as industry is probably at some point in, time in, in the winter we might hit zero gas in the, in the storage. Um, we are quite well prepared in the sense that we have dual heating and dual um, dual also uh, energy for our equipment. We can switch from gas to oil. So that gives us some resilience in all of our sites. But it's not only your own site that needs to function. It, all it takes is one supplier site that that can't keep up anymore, and then the ripple effect will catch you anyway. So I think that... That huge network of things that needs to click uh, is something that's very concerning with regards to energy.
0: So do you think you'll do you think your planning will get around that? Or could there actually be delays, programmatic delays and challenges that come from it?
1: I wouldn't rule out that they could be. Right now we feel comfortable, but if the situation deteriorates very much and uh, and, 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 and a lot of other companies get affected, then that would probably have a ripple effect on us.
0: Uh, Let me ask you another difficult question, which is uh, the outlook for uh, SCAF. Um, We heard the Air Force Secretary and the Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force discussing NGAD. It's a highly classified program. Uh, But clearly, you get a sense from uh, Secretary Kendall and the chief, he announces integrated by uh, design concept to make sure that, look, if we can architecturally get our systems where they can all interoperate. That's the future we have to go to at a time of major investment. On the Tempest program, you now have apparently the Japanese joining the British, Swedes, and the Italians on that program. And obviously, SCAF was a major effort involving Germany, France, uh, and Spain. Uh, Eric Trappier, the Dassault Aviation CEO, has been very candid about his views uh, about SCAF, um, both uh, at the National Assembly but also beyond that. What's the outlook of this program? Um, There are folks who are already discussing um, DESO potentially getting investment, for example, from the UAE. Obviously, the company hasn't commented on that. Where is this program going, Mike? Uh, Because it's very, very important from an Airbus standpoint, uh, transatlantically, to signal you guys as a leading prime contractor on one of the most important combat aircraft programs in Europe. You're right in that uh, we have encountered difficulties in
1: in, in trying to find out what's the right uh, working model between leadership, collaboration, and and, and around core work packages. Um, I think uh, we are very close in terms of uh, having it all negotiated away, in terms of being ready to sign the relevant contracts. Um, There is a political will to make it work in France as in Germany, so I I remain optimistic, but I'm not naively optimistic in the sense that if it were not to happen, and I think this year is the crunch time, uh, then we'll pursue other options.
0: Does that mean um, Britain, Germany, Spain, and Italy have had a tremendous collaborative history when it comes to combat aircraft on the tornado program and then on the typhoon program? Could Airbus become a partner of the Tempest effort? Uh, I mean, we're,
1: we're speculating now. Uh, again, our preferred option is to make uh, FCAS work with with France and with Spain and Germany as as the three countries supporting it and wanting it. Uh, but clearly, uh, there is uh, a, the Eurofighter consortium that is still working, that is still sticking together with the, and with a long history, covered Tornado as well, and um, the door. I assess is still not closed so that could be one of the possible fallback uh, solutions.
0: What, what if, if I may just one last question on this. Um, I understand sort of the Dassault model having discussed this with Eric over the years, which is hey we you know somebody has to be in charge and it's important and you know if, if you have too many chefs in the kitchen not to wear out the analogy, it tends to become uh, difficult. On the other hand, it is a collaborative program and everybody has to give a little bit. You know, well, how are your talks with him going in terms of what that balance looks like? Because you guys also have some very qualified airplane people, uh, and so does Spain. I think where we agree is
1: we need leadership in such a program, and, and we're not we're not debating that. Um, the question is, is your leadership model one that that allows for collaboration, and you have strong main partners that also bring assets, that bring know-how, that bring solutions to the table, or do you have more of a I'm, I'm the boss and the rest are all suppliers type of thing. And uh, that so comes from that ladder approach. That's what they used to. We come from something that is probably in Eurofighter might have had too much collaboration and eyes level, sometimes uh, at the expense of of, of speed and, 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 and clear decisions. So uh, I think we need to find
0: common ground somewhere in the middle. I want to ask you about speed and connectivity. Are you convinced that whatever program is generated is going to be fully interoperable with uh, the Tempest program, ultimately, as well as Zangad? I know you've had some of those comments. But more importantly, what are the keys to speed and the successful but quick execution of a program like this? Because we're talking about timelines really sliding. Uh, Maybe it might be better just to get your general thoughts on how to make a program work fast and deliver capability quickly and be interoperable at the same time yeah i think uh,
1: both vectors i think point someone in the same direction and i think it starts with the right architecture uh i think what we need to come to is is clearly uh, an architecture that that separates out software innovation innovation from from hardware the platform will take its time that there is ways to compress that further but with with uh certification everything else um it does take time now What I think we need to come to is what what less complex systems already offer today is that you bring innovation on a regular basis driven by software. And that is only possible if you decouple the two, if you decouple the cycles of innovation. And that helps you in the program execution. That helps you with keeping the platform updated. And that also is actually what is needed to come to meaningful solutions for interoperability because that's something that is also not a kind of black and white thing. I mean, there will always be cores of national interest that will not be interoperable with anybody. But it needs to be like an onion peel model where we need to penetrate deeply enough to share, to be able to
0: connect. And that, again, points back to the software architecture. Last question, growth in the United uh, United States. Airbus has been investing uh, in the United States for some time, uh, both in acquisitions, but also in real-term capability. You won the tanker competition. Uh, And unfortunately, from your standpoint, it was undone. Uh, Boeing continues to pay for that on a daily basis. And Ted's trying to make sure that it makes it work. Um, You have a great CEO and a team in the United States. What's the growth track in the United States? Because more and more people are looking and saying, hey, what role does it play? And you guys are having more and more meetings uh, and winning more and more work on the US side. Right, and if you want to look at tanker space or any other uh, capability,
1: let me maybe start with my my own conviction of of Europe and European NATO countries, um, and in our partnership with the U.S. <laughs> I'm a Fort Rucker trained helicopter pilot, so it's in my DNA to think transatlantic, and I always see the opportunities in the U.S. Despite all the difficulties that we've had, and in recent years. So I, I look at the U.S. as not only a partner but also a huge market and if we find the right setup which we've now found with an SSA organization uh, and, 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 a, and a great U.S. team that we're building the capabilities and, and the quantities of, of, of resources, uh, we're gaining some traction. As you probably know a couple of years back we won the training helicopter, the Lakota, uh, for the U.S. Army. Since then there's not been any major bigger um, wins. I think uh, we've now made our first smaller type wins, which I look at as very promising on the space side uh, with the Tranche One uh, transport layer participation. And, uh, and there's more to come. Uh, and I find, and I talked to Frank Candle at, at Riyot, um I think there's also uh, the same time of openness to collaborate, to to come back together to tap into the capabilities and technologies of the Western world, because we have a joint adversary.
0: Mike, thanks very much. It's really been a pleasure. Already looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks very much, and have a great air show. Thanks, Vago. Thanks for having me. It is a great air show, and and, and I'm enjoying
1: it, and I'm enjoying it. And and Riyadh has just been a blast, to be honest. Last week.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was really great. Even if we we're schwitzing a little bit. Schwitzing a bit. Yeah. And joining us now for his take on the key themes at this great air show is one of our team, Byron Callen, of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. Uh, Byron, thanks very much uh, for joining us, and it's been great seeing you the last couple of days.
2: It has been, Vago. I think I took another inch off of, of the leather off the bottom of my shoes. (laughs)
0: Exactly. And that's that's saying something since you're a very gumshoe analyst uh, and uh, try try to hit as many events. And it was a lovely reception. Uh, The U.S. reception was lovely at uh, Kensington Gardens um, last night. just wanted to get your sense on what the key themes were at this show. Right. What did you see uh, that, um, you know, goes a little bit deeper than than the headlines?
2: Well, I think there was there were three big themes and then I'll, I'll roll in some other, you know, kind of separate observations. But I think, you know, theme number one was just the UK commitment to the Tempest program and the momentum in that program. You know, there was really kind of a hiatus in, in terms of an event where there was a lot of formal news flow because we didn't have Farmer two years ago. Um, but, you know, the program still remains more or less on track. You know, the, the progress that's been made uh, by BAE Systems, by Rolls, by Leonardo, it's kind of intriguing. And then um, looping in the Japanese in this project, um, you know, I, I think there's still some more definitive agreements that have to be reached, but the program has momentum. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, dropping mosquito, looking at, at smaller swarming concepts, I think was kind of an interesting development too. And kind of in the background, Vaga, was... You know, oh, F-35 flew, but great, you know, in, in an odd way, it's it's certainly current generation technology, but in the backdrop, you know, the, the Koreans showed a mock-up of their... Um, their, their ktx21 aircraft um, in which which had its first flight uh, not at Farnborough but but during the show um, the, the Turks had a mock-up of their aircraft so there's there's still a lot going on in the global combat aircraft market and I think tempest uh, really kind of highlighted that
0: even though there was all this other activity going on I mean ultimately uh, the f-35 still remains You know, the most cutting edge aircraft that's on the market and indeed uh, will continue to be landing uh, sales. What were some of the other subtle things um, ha- did you pick up, right? I mean, there were a lot lot of discussion on supply chain disruptions. Yeah, uh, yeah. right I mean, after a while, you know, everybody's talking up space because space is the next big business, uh, right? I mean, I don't think it's the next big business. It's always been a big business. In fact, it might be becoming a smaller, more distributed business uh, as opposed to what uh, geostationary, um, you know, and, and middle altitude, right? I mean, everybody's going into the Leo space. What were some of the other things that you've been picking up here that, that you think- well, I,
2: frankly, spent some time, you know, it's just a theme. It's, you know, Farmer was on the eve of another earnings reporting season, you know, Lockheed Martin had reported on the 19th. Um, But I think this whole question about, we can talk about growth expectations and how, how much, how fast budgets could grow and what the program priorities are. But there's a human capital story that I think is really going to be a critical issue for this sector, not just in the United States, but in Europe and even in parts of the Middle East as well, too. I mean, there's a lot of there's global um, competition for talent, uh, for, for engineering skills, particularly in software, AI, you know, some of the things that uh, defense wants to try and harness. Um, but, you know, when you get into the trades, um, you know, skilled machinists. Uh, that's another real critical area, and I, I think, you know, as much as much as people can draw these projections about where sales might be going for the sector, this whole question of human resources, I think, is going to be a lot more important, um, you know, as as you think forward about what what industry is able to do um, over over the next couple of years. And I, I was intrigued, you know, the number of states and countries <clears throat> that had pavilions set up, you know, basically to attract um, aerospace and defense work to their states or countries. But in the same breath, you know, one of the key themes that that all these people were talking about was either immigration policies or uh, domestic, um, you know, local workforce training policies to help accommodate um, who could possibly set up uh, new new factories, new tech centers in, in their respective states or countries.
0: Do, you know, one of the uh, McKinsey started off Wednesday morning, uh, McKinsey and company, uh, with uh, a great panel discussion uh, convened by Eric Tuning, who heads, uh, as you know, the aerospace and defense practice there. Um, and right. one of the more important things was the manpower shortage. And obviously, um, Eric served uh, not, not just as Mark Esper's uh, chief of staff, but he was also the industrial, poli- industrial and manufacturing policy chief uh, early in the last administration. Do, do you think that there's... Did you get a sense that folks really have a plan for how they address the manpower shortage uh, or the human capital shortage? And it's not just a human capital shortage, right? One of one of the challenges is that they don't have the right kinds of people in the right kinds of jobs, software, for example, being one of the places that has the the, the biggest shortcomings. Uh, and indeed, right, in, in this ecosystem, you see that Spirit Aerosystems, for example, is, is really plays a disproportionately large role as the engineer, uh, or the developer on the, on the large complex aerostructures. I mean, do you get a sense right. that the, that there's actually a, a kind of a more cogent plan aside from, you know, funding STEM and an early, uh, early education, right? Friday is STEM day here. And, you know, it's yeah. four kids. Do you get Look, a sense I there's think, a real plan?
2: Um, no, I think there are a lot of little plans. Um, but you know, like I talked to, uh, I talked to people from the state of Connecticut where I'm a, a resident and, you know, it's pretty interesting as a state of Connecticut. You know, they're go- there's a governor's task force. They're trying to work with uh, defense and aerospace companies in Connecticut, uh, and I think one of the interesting shifts is, it, you know, it's close cooperation with with educational institutions in that state as well too. It's not just the and and again, this isn't just software engineers, the the kind of you know high pay, glitzy part of the business, but the really basic part of, of actually building stuff. So, you know, to get machinists, um, you know, people who know their way, how to, how to build electrical systems. I mean, on down the line, I think one of the the interesting things, and this was articulated, I think pretty well by Connecticut people was, um, it's it's got to be a joint effort. It's got to involve industry, education, uh, education institutions and government um, to try and help promote some of this stuff. And it's going to take a while for this to really change. It, you don't turn this on a dime. You know, you've got to get kids um, interested in aerospace defense, um, you know, can, Show them that this can be an exciting field that um, they can they can raise a family with if if that's what they want to do. Um, and so it's going to take a while. It took us a long time to get us into this position. I think it's going to take us a while for us to get out. But I I just it's I'm very mindful of this Vago because you know as an analyst you're just tempted to fill in the little boxes in the Excel worksheet and go aha there's our growth rate. It, it was just a I won't say an epiphany but but a reminder that. You know, people are what make these things happen, Pe- people in capital investment. And so um, if those two things aren't happening, um, th- those numbers and those spreadsheets aren't going to be realized. And any last thoughts before we part? There are a lot of separate observations, um, you know, just about the, the, the maybe the market anticipation of like wh- where's the defense spending growth going to come? You know, I, I heard a lot more confidence <laughs> in um, in. A, a turning cycle uh, for defense. It's going to take, you know, we've got to go through a year where these budgets really come together, priorities are sorted out. But I mean, we, we really are looking at a at a very different, a fundamentally different uh, a security environment that existed during the 1990s and the 2000s, and uh, that's a generational change. And then, obviously, to your allusion about space. You know, there's all sorts of technological change going on, and frankly, doctrinal or operational changes as well too. About what's the technology? How are you going to solve these security problems? You know, you're seeing this morph, you know, as we speak, um, in maybe some of the approaches that have been considered, for example, in the Tempest program. Uh, you know, dropping mosquito for uh, you know, kind of almost a, a smaller, larger quantity of uh, of of munitions that would, or or loyal wingmen or whatever, but I mean, I I think there there's a affordability overlay to this too um, right. that's going to be enabled by technology. So it's it's been a good show. I mean, it's um, it's always hectic, as you know. You know, you, you kind of finish these things off and go, ah, I wish I had another seven days, but alas, uh, you know, no one really does. You you kind of pick what you can and and um, take away with it.
0: Well, it it was terrific. It was terrific seeing you, spending some time with you. And indeed, uh, just a a tremendous opportunity to catch up with folks that uh, you haven't seen in person uh, for four years. It was uh, tremendous seeing you here. Uh, Byron, thanks very much. Safe trip home and look forward to having you back on week after next.
2: You got it, Vago. Cheers.
0: Thanks so much.